This is October 25th, 2020, and uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to talk about hope. Um, I recently, in uh, <clears throat> I think at least one uh, of my Corona casts and at least one Tay show, I've um, looked very directly at all of the ways that our country and the world is unraveling, and uh, and yet there's the other side, and I'm going to begin by reading from an article by Nicholas Kristof. Uh, <clears throat> the name of the article is, We Interrupt This Gloom to Offer Hope. Uh, Nicholas Kristof has been a columnist for the New York Times since 2001. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner uh, who writes op-ed columns uh, that appear twice a week in the Times. Uh, he grew up on a sheep and cherry farm near Yamil, Oregon. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Harvard College and then studied law at Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship, graduating with first-class honors. He later studied Arabic in Cairo and Chinese in Taipei. <clears throat> so when this man offers hope, it's not um, kind of uh, flabby-minded, hippie, you know, hoping for the best. It's based on a lot of rigorous study and intellect. Kristoff uh, is, is, is a real humanitarian uh, based on all of the columns I've read <clears throat> and I've been reading them for years. He's a kind of a bodhisattva. Um, many, many of his columns have been uh, bringing to light the terrible suffering of... Uh, of others all all over the world, he's kind of a champion of the oppressed, the underprivileged, the downtrodden all over the world. He uh, he seems indisputably a, a courageous, um, truthful reporter, uh, reporting on the most terrible things in. Uh, mostly other countries, torture, rape, brutality of all kinds. And yet here is this man who's offering hope. So here's, here's how he begins. Yes, our nation is a mess, but overlapping catastrophes have also created conditions that may finally let us extricate ourselves from the mire. The grim awareness of national failures on the coronavirus, racism, health care, and jobs may be a necessary prelude to fixing our country. 
The last time our economy was this troubled, Herbert Hoover's failures led to Franklin D. Roosevelt's election with a mandate to revitalize the nation. The result was the New Deal, Social Security, rural electrification, government jobs programs, and a 35-year burst of inclusive growth that built the modern middle class and arguably made the United States the richest and most powerful country in the history of the world. He goes on, History doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And when I reached out through the gloom to consult experts, I was struck by how much hope I heard. And this is first from a Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation. On balance, I am very hopeful and I'm very optimistic. And then he quotes a Marion Edelman, the founder of the Children's Defense Fund, um, who said that one reason for hope is, paradoxically, President Trump and the way he has become the avatar of failed let-them-eat-cake policies and narratives. She said, Mr. Trump is the perfect opposition to have. He represents the implosion of the American dream, and we can't go down this his road much further. If we can't get something done now, she added, then shame on us. So perhaps, he says now, back to Christoph, so perhaps today's national pain, fear, and loss can also be a source of hope. We may be so desperate, our failures so manifest, our grief so raw, that the United States can once more, as during the Great Depression, embrace long-needed changes that would have been impossible in cheerier times. You have to say that for the majority of Americans, we've had a good run, a lot of prosperity, not not to mention peace. We've gotten fat, if not happy. We've become addicted to consumer values, or really to overconsumption, shopping, incredible levels of convenience. Um, so that we can gratify our wants in more ways than our predecessors could have even imagined. But still, there is discontent. Um, Someone said, discontent is the first step in progress for individuals or nations. Well, if there was discontent before, 
with uh, before the pandemic, before this this year's economic collapse to some extent, before this growing awareness of racial injustice, uh, it's it's true more than ever now. We are suffering, and that's what I've talked about again recently more than once. But but it is only you could argue only through suffering that we are motivated to seek change. You know, the title of this article, um, We Interrupt This Gloom to Offer Hope. Uh, Fair enough, fair enough. But hope as such is not really necessary when we have the fact of causation. Hope, hope, and I've said this before, hope is a thought form. And as such, it has no substance to it. And we would never want to rely on hope. But we don't have to rely on hope if we can see that there is this kind of, <laughs> what to call it, not God. There is this, this corrective course, this corrective intelligence uh, in the world. Before going further into that, I'll read some more of his points. The United States faces at least three simultaneous crises. More coronavirus deaths than any other country. The worst economic slump since the Great Depression. And overflowing outrage over racial inequity. Yet these crises are all interlinked all facets of the same core failure. The same core failure of our country, one that has its roots in President Richard Nixon's Southern strategy of 1968 and in the racialization of social safety net programs after that. Why is the United States about the only advanced country to lack universal health care and universal paid sick leave? Many scholars have argued that one reason for America's outlier status is race. Investing in safety nets and human capital became stigmatized because of a perception that African Americans would benefit. So instead of investing in children, we invested in a personal responsibility narrative, holding that Americans just need to lift themselves up by their bootstraps to get ahead. This experiment proved catastrophic for all Americans, especially the working class. Marginalized groups 
including African Americans and Native Americans, suffered the worst. But the underinvestment in health and the lack of safety nets meant that American children today are 57% more likely to die by age 19 than European children are. He mentions uh, African Americans, Native Americans, for sure. Uh, We need to add to that another minority, Latinos. And uh, I'm going to switch now to another New York Times article to elaborate on this more. It's, it's, the title is The Coronavirus Race Gap Explained. It starts off, this is by Janine Interlandi. Um, uh, she starts by... Uh, talking about a certain English language class in San Francisco. Um, I'll just sort of summarize this, that the uh, most of the women in that, these are Latinas, most of the women did not know that they could get a coronavirus test without health insurance or that they were legally entitled to paid sick leave if they contracted the virus, regardless of their immigration status. They worked grueling hours at menial jobs that offered little security. It had not occurred to many of them to even ask about such benefits, let alone to expect them. But they all had heard about what happened at the nearby McDonald's. Employees there asked their boss for face masks to wear at work and were given dog diapers and coffee filters to use instead. Many of these women had begun to doubt their own bosses' assurances about the level of risk they themselves faced. Among other things, they had been told that the virus was a hoax, that masks were useless in any case, and that positive test results were often false and could therefore be ignored. She continues, Black and Latino Americans are roughly two to three times more likely than their white counterparts to contract the coronavirus. They're roughly four times more likely to be hospitalized by it. And nearly three times as likely to die from it. Latino children who contract the virus are eight times more likely to be hospitalized than white children and black children five times more likely. And just a bit more statistics. And of the 121 children who died from the virus through July, nearly 80% were children of color. Skipping some paragraphs here, she says, Racial health disparities are neither new nor nor unique to this pandemic. Um, Black and Latino Americans have faced higher rates of chronic illness and infant mortality for generations. And then she quotes a... uh, 
in Margaret Handley, an epidemiologist, if one good thing comes out of COVID, it may be that we finally build the momentum to do this, meaning addressing these disparities. The author continues, when it comes to the coronavirus, the cause and effect relationships may seem so obvious as to barely warrant discussion. So those relationships are the workers who were deemed essential and thus pressed to continue working outside of their homes, even as most others sheltered in place. These workers, the transit workers, the farm and food plant workers, the nursing home aides and cashiers and delivery people came disproportionately from low-income communities of color. Many of them were also already nestled into a cluster of other risk factors. Poor nutrition, inadequate health care, crowded housing that made them especially vulnerable to the virus and its worst effects. One last thing in this article. Uh, she says, among other things, the CDC has tinkered with the way racial data is presented so that white Americans sometimes appear to face the highest risk. And then she quotes Dr. Krieger, who said, they focus on the counts. To really understand what's going on, you need rates. How many people from which group over what time period? And how big is that group overall? It's true that a majority of people who have died from coronavirus in the United States, that is, who have died, uh, are white. There are a lot of white people here but the risk of dying is far greater for black and Latino Americans. So again, these, these workers and the nursing home aides, and the cashiers and delivery people come from low-income communities of color that face poor nutrition, inadequate health care, crowded housing. I keep thinking of these people, crowded housing. What, what options, how many options do they have to social distance when they're crammed into housing that won't allow it? And then come home from potential exposure to all kinds of people through their work. And then back to Nicholas Kristof. Do we now have a chance for a reset? Yes, I think we do. To the extent that America's 50 years of failures had their roots in racism, it's also striking that the new possibilities arise in part from mass revulsion at the video of George Floyd's life being snuffed out by police officers. By the way, I didn't mention this article was written in July, and you know there have been other such um, brutal encounters, brutality on the part of police against blacks, including here in Rochester, 
with uh, Daniel Prude. But he continues, the current Black Lives Matter protests measured by the number of participants, roughly 20 million, appear to constitute the largest movement in American history. He quotes a, uh, a woman who's the exec, uh, chief executive of the, of the Chicago Community Trust. This woman says, Helen Gale says, there was something about seeing a man's knee on another man's neck that woke people up. People think I'm crazy, but I have a sense of possibility, she said. And then he, Nicholas Kristof continues to um, present the evidence of something, something hopeful underway. The polling is striking. 60% of Americans, including a majority of white people, said in a CBS News poll last month, that's June, that they support ideas promoted by the Black Lives Matter movement. Almost as large a majority supports a national health care plan. An astonishing 89% favor higher taxes on the rich to reduce poverty in America. The sense of opportunity thus is emerging not solely from the wreckage of past policies, but also from new attitudes particularly among young people. Half a century ago, there was something to Nixon's claim of a silent majority that backed his racist dog whistles. Today, polls indicate the silent majority want more spending to address racial inequity, more effort to address climate change, and more input from scientists on how to handle COVID-19. It's not clear, of course, that these views will translate into wiser policies. Congress is often more responsive to wealthy donors than to voter opinions. Well, you can say that again. And while white Americans may chant Black Lives Matter, they may not want to back policies to share the bounty that they have been hogging. Few are talking about fixing our unequal system of local school funding built to transmit advantage from one generation to the next. And then he reviews some history that also can give us some hope. In the 1930s, the unequivocal nature of Hoover's failures helped win Roosevelt his mandate and made the New Deal possible. And then Kristoff says, maybe national anguish can again be the midwife of progress. You know, when all is said and done, whoever aspires to change herself, himself, themselves, a country, where, where does that, that aspiration come from other than dissatisfaction, discontent, suffering? Why would anyone, for example, 
come to Zen practice unless they were looking for something more, unless there was some kind of uh, dissatisfaction with what they already have. It's so clear. And, and you know, anguish is a strong word, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who've come to the Zen Center from out of anguish. I, just a little personal history. Um, my sisters who came here before me in 1969 uh, had been urging me to consider coming to a workshop and they got me to read, just to open the Three Pillars of Zen, which I only got about a few pages and it bored me. Um, but then at the time I was, I was working at a uh, psychiatric institution as an aide and we would have these staff meetings. And, uh, oh, this was, this was 1970. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of this certain cultural sharing that just was starting to come out. And, and in these staff meetings, uh, someone suggested there were a lot of young people in these, these, among these staff. Someone suggested that we share our feelings. And my stress level went through the roof and I managed to sputter out that I'm not going to be sharing my feelings with these, all these people in these meetings. And my, my terrible discomfort must have been obvious because one of the uh, one of the aides, a uh, woman who's very <laughs> direct and outspoken, said, whoa. Later, she said, Pete, you were, whoa, you were really uptight. <laughs> and uh, I held it together until I got home. And then I was living alone in a rooming house. And then I just, to my shock, I just collapsed sobbing on the floor. I didn't really quite understand it. You know, obviously it came out of just a wretched sense of self-consciousness in that, in that staff meeting and other meetings. But after that, uh, then I went back to the three pillars and now it spoke to me. Now I had some suffering uh, that would 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 prompt me to want to change, to get serious about about changing myself. Let's hope that all this suffering we're going through as a country, as a world, really. But let's let's leave it now to the country. Let's hope that um, it won't be in vain. That we will find the means to really change. Back to, back to hope. When I say we don't need hope exactly, um, that we, we can rely on causation, um, consider Consider this, this teaching that 
our nature is in accord with the way, the Dharma, the Tao. That's our nature. And so when we, when we get out of balance, when we get out of balance, there is some kind of intelligent correction that happens even despite us, in spite of us, no matter how fiercely we may be clinging to the known and to the familiar and the old ways. Um, the, the law of causation is that things have to come back into balance. There has to be some reordering of things. A reckoning, a reckoning, but... Uh, it so easily slips into the idea of a of a, a a god meeting out retribution. That we don't need God when with the law of causation, things sooner or later will rebalance themselves. I'm suddenly remembering a, this uh, old film, maybe thirty or forty years ago. Um, called uh, Koyana Skatsi. Um, it's a really very powerful movie. I wonder if it's still available. Uh, it, it's, it's of two parts. The first part shows scenes, landscapes, and the most awe-inspiring scenes of nature in silence. It's all in silence, the first half. And the second half is also in silence, but it switches to the, the frenetic, um, stressful pace of urban life. And, and, the, and the title, Koyanaskatsi, is uh, a Hopi word that means out of balance. We've become so out of balance with our values, our cravings, our sense of entitlement. If anyone has any doubts about that, read about other countries and how little they have in the way of choice or freedom Another word for causation is karma. And karma doesn't mean fate. We're not stuck with the effects of our previous thoughts and words and actions. Our responses now uh, can change our experience of our suffering. Uh, karma is a dynamic process. Everything, everything we're doing now and now and now, everything, every, every action we're taking, every word we speak, and yes, every thought we have is folded into our karma, our experience of what we have sowed in the past. A little more from Nicholas Kristof here. 
if I can remember where I left off. Yes, he said, national anguish can again be the midwife of progress, of evolution. Evolution, spiritual evolution, collectively, all of us. And then he quotes a uh, Harvard historian, Elizabeth Cohen. It is possible that the best thing that could have happened to make progressive change possible is the crass, self-interested, ineffective politics of Donald Trump. And then uh, Christoph uh, sort of uh, plays devil's advocate. He says, but wait, even if Biden wins with both chambers of Congress, uh, then he presents the possibility of all these ongoing obstructions to change. And he says, actually, that sounds rather like the 1930s. Roosevelt was initially blocked by the Supreme Court and denounced by uh, Father Charles Coughlin on the right and Senator Huey Long on the left. He was regularly accused of being a warmonger and a fascist dictator of taking America on the road to communism. Christoph continues, skeptics worry that Trump has permanently damaged American institutions and norms in ways that will impair future progress. Perhaps. But Nixon likewise challenged institutions, norms, and the rule of law. And the result was that Americans came to value them more. One result was the democratic tidal wave of 1974. Again, he draws from history. I often hear Americans say that our country has never been so divided. That doesn't ring true. Far more than today, households in the 1960s were riven by civil warfare with children denouncing parents as murderers for backing the Vietnam War and parents despairing of their offspring as immoral good-for-nothings. If we survive the chasms of the 1960s, we can get through this. And then he quotes uh, Jimmy Carter, former President Jimmy Carter, I know we will see a better future. We have been, this is Carter speaking recently, we have been through many painful crises, some spanning years, but we have always gotten back on our feet. Sometimes there must be a reckoning and course correction. There it is. Causation. The law of causation. I reached out to Carter because his, his administration in the late 70s roughly marked the end of the post-war cycle of inclusive capitalism. At age 95, he's still guardedly optimistic, as is Walter Mondale, his vice president, a classic liberal who at age 92 said he feels a lot of hope.
Roosevelt was a somewhat conventional privileged figure who seized upon the catastrophe of the Depression to transform America. And then one last quote here, uh, uh, almost last quote. Uh, this is this Elizabeth Cohen, uh, the historian, who said, FDR wasn't by nature a revolutionary, but out of the trauma of the Great Depression, he helped unleash a revolution that made America a richer, fairer, and better country. The same is possible again if we get everything right. Everything. <clears throat> uh, we may be a long way from getting out of the woods from all this. It's possible that this is, we're not seeing the, the end or even the beginning of the end, maybe the end of the beginning, as Churchill said. The kind of deep change or the, the restoration of our country um, may only come through prolonged suffering. This is our crucible. This will determine what character we are as, as a people. And then uh, he quotes Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey. Hope right now in America is bloodied and battered, but this is the kind of hope that is successful. It's hope that has lost its naivete. I think many, many authors and observers of the United States have commented that we're like, we're, we're adolescent. We're with the same undeveloped characters as, as adolescents who haven't yet um, really faced so much of what we have to face in life. Um, if nothing else, we're really growing up this year, probably next year. And that's, that's promising. In the final paragraph, besieged as we are by plague and crisis, a dollop of this calloused hope, as Booker calls it, offers an incentive to persevere. If in the depths of the Great Depression we could claw a path out and forge a better country, calloused hope can guide us once more to a better place. Above all, above 
all, we, we have to remember the law of change, impermanence. Nothing is forever. Nothing. We learn this. We learn this from other crises we've gone through, losses, people close to us, other kinds of losses, that we move on. We have to. That's life. It moves on. We, we, we learn this in a, a kind of a, a real, um, real close-up in Sashin, when uh, inevitably, especially in early Sashins, inevitably we go through our down periods, our, our, our crises of faith, most of us, our doubt, yes, our anguish. But it passes by, by, by persevering. We find our way through it. And there's no, how could it be any otherwise than in, the, in this more broad kind of macrocosmic uh, level? Of course, there's going to be an end to the pandemic. Of course, there's going to be an end to such terrible divisiveness in our politics. When, we don't know when that ending will be. Of course, it's going to be farther in the future than any of us would want, but it's going to end. We're going, it's going to pass. Zen Master Dogen, those who would practice the Dharma must deeply, deeply feel the passing nature of things and have faith in karma. Have faith that there is some order to this universe. There is some intelligence, order, and things will rebalance sooner or later. All right, we'll stop here now and recite the four vows. <laughs> 